world's becoming a dangerous place for us women. Lipstick Bodyguard looks just like an innocent little lipstick, but it'll instantly drop any attacker to his knees so you can get away unharmed. Lipstick Bodyguard. Fear no evil. Get yours today only at LipstickBodyguard.com. This week on Parents Are Hard to Raise, elder law expert Amos Goodall, president of the National Elder Law Foundation, is back to discuss some recent changes in the law that could immediately and severely impact the welfare of our aging parents and us. Join 180 million monthly subscribers who can now listen to Parents Are Hard to Raise on Spotify. Welcome to Parents Are Hard to Raise, helping families grow older together without losing their minds. I'm elder care expert Diane Berardi. Longtime listeners will recognize my next guest as our go-to expert on all matters in elder law. If I were to list all of his credentials, we wouldn't have any time left in the show. So let me just say, he's a certified elder law attorney practicing in Center County, Pennsylvania, with the firm Steinbacher Goodall in your check where he has been practicing elder law since 1976. Philadelphia Magazine named him a super lawyer in elder law, as they have every year since the category was created. He's a fellow of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys and currently serves as president of the National Elder Law Foundation. Attorney Amos Goodall, welcome back to Parents Are Hard to Raise. Thank you, Diane. It's a pleasure to be back, and I appreciate the chance to speak to your, uh, your large audience. Well, what do you have for us this week? Well, Diane, I wanted to talk about fiduciaries. Uh, a fiduciary is someone who makes decisions for you if you can't make them for yourself, generally. Okay. And uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about that in general. I'm also going to uh, talk touch on that under uh, as a matter of Pennsylvania law. But I would like to encourage your listeners that if they hear something that is... Um, uh, that, that, that they want to investigate further, that they really need to talk to their own lawyer, and, uh, and they should, if they don't have a family lawyer, they should talk to a certified elder law attorney, because these questions are generally arising under state law, and the law of each state might be a little bit different than the law of, of other states. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to talk about the general rules, and I'm going to talk about Pennsylvania law, but every state's law has to be consulted um, okay. uh, by its residents. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, every state could be a little different. Okay, so uh, we're going to talk. We're talking about fiduciaries, okay. and I uh, I wanted to point out that there is no such thing as a common law fiduciary. So many people think, well, I'm as a parent, I speak for my children, which is true if children are minors. As a husband, I speak for my wife, which probably is not often true, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, or my wife, if my wife can speak for me, which is slightly more often true as a matter of fact, but not a matter of law, and uh, if my parents get old, I can speak for them because I know what's best. Okay. And the answer is those those categories or those uh, 
logical decision makers or common law decision makers uh, uh, have no authority under the law of any state. Okay. Uh, if a child, when a child reaches the age of eighteen, even if that child has no capacity, if, a ch- if the child has uh, is, has special needs, uh, uh, the parents can no longer speak for the child in, in most areas. And after the child reaches twenty-one, in no areas. Really. Uh, okay. And and uh, husbands and wives and children for their parents, all of those categories are. Uh, th- there's no such thing as an automatic or a common law or a de facto fiduciary, or de facto decision maker. And so people need to either take the matter in their own hands and figure out who should be their decision makers and what the, uh, what the boundaries or what the guidance should be, which is what we help people do, or they have to wait until the court appoints someone. And if that happens... The court may not appoint the right person. Right. Uh, the person appointed by the court may not have the total best interests of the uh, of the person for whom the decisions are being made in in uh, in mind, right. and it's often very expensive. And we've, uh, if you've uh, heard about problems uh, recently, I believe the Philadelphia Inquirer ran a series of articles about abuses in the uh, in a. Uh, guardianship system where guardians were actually milking their wards, at least it seemed like from the articles, uh, were milking their wards money, at least using it improvidently and uh, impoverishing the people that they were making decisions for. Right. So for a whole lot of reasons, it's so much better that a person who who, uh, anticipates that they may have someone, need to have someone make decisions for them. Right will take action in advance and say who that person should be and also set up what the parameters are. So now let's say, you know, myself as a child of an aging parent and I feel um, maybe for health reasons, my parent can't uh, make decisions or needs help with certain things. We would go to a certified elder law attorney and explain that and then what would happen? Or is that the, that's the proper thing to do, well, right? <laughs> that's the proper thing. Okay. To, yes, that's the proper thing to do, and that's the, that's um, what happens is that your parents would say to that your your aging parent would say to that uh, certified elder law attorney, um, I I realize that I'm my mind may be getting a little bit uh, uh, fuzzy, right. or it might get a little bit fuzzy someday. Or I don't expect ever to get fuzzy, but I want to have somebody on backup. Okay. Uh, but whatever whatever they have to say, however they they have that to say, and I would like to name Diane to make decisions for me. Okay. Uh, I'd like to provide for her that if I can't make my own healthcare decisions, she's the one I want to have making those decisions for me. I don't want to have my my. Uh, my wife, who might be, or my husband, who might be uh, as uh, as scared as I am about my future, right. making those decisions. I, I want I want my daughter, who is younger and smart and strong and able to make the decisions, and able to make herself understood. I don't want my son, who uh, who is has a hard time making decisions or would have a hard time making a hard decision because he's so emotional. I don't want him making the decisions. I want Diane to make the decisions. So that would be the first thing that the parent would need to say to the lawyer. Okay. And then the second thing, the, the second thing the parent would need to say is, these are the parameters for how Diane should make decisions for me. Number one, I want to be kept comfortable. Number two, 
I want to be, I want to preserve my privacy or my, my dignity. Right. Uh, and, uh, and number three, if, the, if, the, if they, they could say, I want, if I'm, uh, if I'm dying, if I'm, if I'm expected to die in the near future and my heart stops beating, I don't want to be resuscitated. Uh, and I want to, for, I want Diane to have the power to make that decision. And I want her to know that that's what I want to have her do. And I want her to have the authority to say to the doc, say that to the doctors. And I want, I want to pick someone like Diane who would have the backbone to make that decision as opposed to some other, uh, this, uh, some other family member who might not have that strength. Right. Now, I guess those parameters, they could, say everything you said as far as you know decisions involving health care they could say also financial as well or anything could really be in those parameters exactly uh that the first the, the person i described it was would be called a health care decision maker okay uh, and then uh and uh often that document is called a, a health care power of attorney or an advanced health care document or a living will. I mean, those are, there are many ways to accomplish that, uh, giving that decision making authority. And, and, uh, different lawyers will have different ways that they favor. In, in my own office, for example, I try to, if, assuming that the same, that they want the same person to make this, make all of those kinds of decisions, all those health care decisions, I would try to do it in all, all in one document. Okay. Uh, but it's, it's possible to say, I want for routine health decisions, I want to have, I want to name somebody, and for end of life healthcare decisions, I want to name somebody else. Okay, that's I mean, there's much flexibility as as uh, as the person wants. The second category would be uh, business decisions, as you said, and and you might say your your parent might say, well, you know, I'm I missed a quarterly uh, tax payment filing date, or I missed paying uh, my electric bill last month, and I got a uh, uh, you know, I got a penalty or I, I didn't pay my credit card on time or something, and I don't want to be doing that anymore. I want to have somebody else make those decisions, make those payments for me, and I want to have that person have authority to call up the credit card company and say, hey, I'm calling for uh, my parent, and I'm his I'm his or her agent, and I, I dispute this bill, uh, or I, uh, I want to know what this bill's for. And that's um, that would be a... a, a an agent under a business power of attorney. Okay. And, and again, you know, the person that you choose, the parent chooses, may not be the logical or may not be the person, someone outside the family would say, well, that's the person that ought to do that. It, it's, it's important that the parent actually have an idea who should be making decisions. Um, there, again, there are family members who are lovely family members and who are emotionally supportive and who are the apples of their parents' eyes, right. but they might not be the people with business-like approach to things that you would want making business decisions. And so the uh, um, the parent could name a different child or someone else to make those decisions. Uh, that's that's called a power of attorney, um, and there are various kinds of powers of attorney. There are uh, limited powers of attorney. Uh, I want my child to make I want my agent to make uh, uh, banking decisions for me. Okay. Or I want my agent to make have the right to do something else, but, uh, deal with my stockbroker or something. 
And there are general powers of attorney that say, I want my agent to make any business decision that has to be made. And that's a very, very powerful document, uh, as you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, and so you want to be sure that you choose the person making that decision, making those decisions for you with care. We're going to continue talking with Amos. But first, if you're a woman or there's a woman in your life, there's something you absolutely need to know. I want to tell you about my friend Katie. Katie is a nurse, and she was attacked on her way home from work. She was totally taken by surprise. And although Katie is only 5 feet tall and 106 pounds, she was easily able to drop her 6 foot 4, 250 pound attacker to his knees and get away unharmed. Katie wasn't just lucky that day. She was prepared. In her pocketbook, a harmless looking lipstick, which really contained a powerful man-stopping aerosol propellant. It's not like it was in our grandmother's day. Today, just going to and from work or to the mall can have tragic consequences. The FBI says a violent crime is committed every 15 seconds in the United States, and a forcible rape happens every five minutes. And chances are, when something happens, no one will be around to help. It looks just like a lipstick, so no one will suspect a thing, which is important since experts say getting the jump on your attacker is all about the element of surprise. Inside this innocent-looking lipstick is the same powerful stuff used by police and the military to disarm even the most powerful armed aggressor. In fact, National Park Rangers use the very same formula that's inside this little lipstick to stop 2,000-pound vicious grizzly bears dead in their tracks. It's like carrying a personal bodyguard with you in your purse or your pocket. Darkness brings danger. Muggers and rapists use darkness to their advantage. We all know what it's like to be walking at night and hear footsteps coming at us from behind. Who's there? If it's somebody bad, will you be protected? Your life may depend on it. My friend Katie's close call needs to be a wake-up call for all of us, myself included. Pick up a lipstick bodyguard and keep it with you always. Were you ever young? You're listening to Parents Are Hard To Raise. Now, thanks to you, the number one elder care talk show on planet Earth. Listen to this and other episodes on demand using the iHeartRadio app. iPhone users can listen on Apple Podcasts and Android users on Google Podcasts. Want a great new way to listen to the show? Have an Amazon Echo or Dot? Just say, Alexa, play Parents Are Hard To Raise podcast. Getting the latest episode of Parents Are Hard To Raise. Here it is from iHeartRadio. It's as simple as that. You're right, Dolly. There are so many really cool new ways to listen to our show. It's so hard to keep track. You can join the 180 million listeners on Spotify. You can listen in your car, at the gym, or pretty much anywhere on your smartphone with Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. You can get us on Apple TV, DirecTV, Roku, and like Dolly said, you can even ask Alexa to play the show for you. It's great because you don't have to be tied to a radio anymore. You can listen when you want, where you want, for as long as you want. And if you're listening to the show in one of these new ways, please do me a big favor. Share this new technology. Help someone else learn about the show and show them a new way to listen. I just wanted to mention, Amos, um, we were um, talking about abuses in, in guardianship, and we had done some shows on guardianship abuse 
Number 71 was with Marsha Southwick on guardianship abuse, and number 86 with Marty Oakley on medical kidnapping. So if we have new listeners out there, it'd be great for you to hear those shows. Thanks for pointing that out, and that, uh, uh, Diane, because that, that points out a, uh, a problem that, that we often have with, with these estate planning uh, creations, and that is that sometimes people change. And it's important when you are writing your, uh, when you're conferring these, this authority, right. that you have ways to, uh, uh, to control that or the way uh, you have what I call escape valves. Okay. Uh, for example, for example, uh, I, when I, we were talking a few minutes ago about powers of attorney. Right. And another way to handle uh, uh, decision-making is to create something called a trust, a revocable living trust, which actually allows you to provide more of a framework for the decision-making and allows uh, you to uh, – uh, and, and sometimes folks will name a bank, for example, as the trustee of a revocable living trust. In fact, often they will name a bank or some other institution or some other professional trustee. I always, in, and, and I think a lot of lawyers always insert in their documents some sort of an escape valve that maybe uh, a, something called a trust committee or a trust protector, which actually uh, creates an advocate for for the uh, for the beneficiary with the trustee. So if if for example I I'm, I'm I'm that classic parent who missed a couple of filing deadlines or missed a couple of payments, and I decide I don't want to handle my my physical affairs anymore. Right. I and I name a, a bank or name name someone as the trustee. I can create a second position called a trust committee or a, a trust protector, who has the power first of all to uh, interact with the trustee and to find out. Uh, what's going on, and to have the same basic rights that that I do as a beneficiary to to get information and to interact with the trustee. But the second thing that the the trust protector has is the power to fire the trustee and hire a new one. So if I've named X Y Z Bank, or if I've named a person as my uh, 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 agent right. and or my trustee. And the person is not acting properly, or is uh, not paying close enough attention to my needs, or isn't doing what should be done. Right. Then the trust committee or the trust protector would have the power to fire that trustee and to hire a new one, so that uh, so that as I, as the beneficiary, as as maybe I get a little bit less able to speak for myself, there's a family member who can still speak for me. That allows you. That allows the parent to keep the family members involved in their affairs, keep the family members involved in their lives, right. and also keeps the trustee's feet to the fire so that if the trustee um, doesn't uh, act properly, the trustee could be replaced. That's that's one of the reasons that I am so much in favor of having powers of attorney and trusts, having the people name their own fiduciaries, because if the court names the fiduciary, you're going to have to go back to the court and convince the judge that he, that the judge made a mistake in naming that fiduciary. If you want to make, if you want to get uh, get the fiduciary changed, okay. or 
at least you have to you have to convince some third party, and it's an advocate advocate. Uh, it's an adverse proceeding. It's uh, it's not. Uh, there, there's a chance for controversy, and it's it's much easier if you have a trust committee that can send a letter that says, "Dear Mr. Trustee, we have the power to hire and fire trustees with or without cause. Uh, you're fired." Ah, okay. uh, and uh, and and uh, so that uh, unfortunately, when there's a custodian, if you if you haven't had the foresight to create a trustee or a, a power of attorney. Uh, you don't have that power to hire and fire. The court's the only one that has the power to hire and fire. Okay. So I, I, uh, I advocate for, uh, this, 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 uh, private, uh, transfer of authority so that we can, we can engraft those kinds of safeguards into it. Uh, most states have other, uh, safeguards that, uh, apply to powers of attorney, uh, in Pennsylvania, for example. They're very. You have to be very precise in how you pro- give powers to people to act, and even if the agent has the power to act, uh, it would be illegal for the patient, to the, the uh, uh, agent, to uh, act contrary to the to the principal's wishes if if the agent knew what they were, and the agent has has to account to the principal for what the agent is doing, and I will often say uh, I. I uh, authorize some other person in the family to uh, ask for that kind of an accounting so that it's possible to protect the principal when we um, when we're creating this uh, fiduciary relationship the other thing I wanted to point out to your listeners or another thing at least is that you, you um, to have a guardian you need to be fairly far along in terms of mental incapacity to need a guardian for the court to be authorized to appoint a guardian for you. Okay. And people say, well, I, you know, Amos is losing his marbles. I don't think he's, uh, he's, he should be handling his own affairs. That right. may not be enough to create a guardian, but someone who is, uh, is slipping mentally, there are ways to enhance their capacity so that they can make a decision to name a, name a, an agent or to name a trustee. I mean, you know, you uh, elder law attorneys are trained to uh, to try. Oftentimes, as as you know, people tend to sundown, and so you want to have the conversations in the morning. Right. Um, you you may want to have the con- you may want to have a number of small conversations where you talk about the the, uh, the concept in little bites, and maybe go back and talk about it again in little bites until. The person might actually understand what what's going on and have the and and thereby have the capacity to transfer the authority. It's not capacity is not an all or nothing thing, and it's not you know the curtains up or the curtains down. Uh, people, there's a whole spectrum of abilities, and there are and the, and those abilities change from day to day, from time to time during the day. Right. So it's. It, no one should say, "I my father is too far gone for me to be able to have him sign a power of attorney." It's if he's if he is moving down that path, uh, it's it would be important to get in to see an uh, an attorney as soon as possible, and and see what can be done. It's I, I, I can't say that every single I've never ever had a. Uh, a client that I decided was unable to sign a, uh, a power of attorney, but uh, it, it's very, very rare, and it, 
better to have a, a, a relationship, a fiduciary relationship, that the lawyer and the uh, parent or, or that the lawyer designs expressly for the parent with all the kinds of safeguards that we've been talking about as opposed right. to uh, having having it to go to court. And, of course, um, going to court is all, the other thing is always a lot more expensive than uh, in simply doing it in a lawyer's office. Yeah, definitely. Um, and you had mentioned a parent, you have, you know, four children, and you can kind of know which which child might be better off handling, you know, the day-to-day business, and then maybe another who might be better for health care decisions, et cetera. I, one of the stories I tell clients is that when I was doing, I think that everyone who's over the age of 18 should have a power of attorney. Everyone who's over the age of 18 should have a, uh, a health care power of attorney or a living will. Okay. And, and I'm over the age of 18. And so when I was, uh, at, at a point I was doing my own, uh, health care document and I knew I wanted to name my wife as my primary uh, decision maker, but I also, I always, when I do one of these documents, I always want to name a secondary person because something might happen to my wife. Right. So okay. I was casting about who should be the second decision and, and, uh, decision maker. And I thought I didn't really want to burden my children who were then younger, much younger with, uh, having to make life and death decisions for their father. And they, it, it might be very hard for them. And so I have a, I, I had a law partner who, uh, I, who I still have as a law partner. Uh, Kathleen Yurchak, who uh, she she's our litigator, and I went to her and I said, you know, Kathleen, if would you be the number two decision maker? And her answer was, well, Amos, let me understand. If something happens to you, I get this practice right. I'll pull your plug in a minute. <laughs> and that was really the kind of decision maker that I wanted to have in my power of attorney. That was the kind of person I wanted making decisions for me. So. Um, that's the kind of, I mean, I didn't name either one of my children as the ultimate right. decision. Right. So, so it's important to do, to do that, to, to make sure you've got the right person in the role. Right, definitely. Amos, where can people find out about the National Elder Law Foundation? Well, the, the, uh, we recently uh, published a new website that, that makes it very simple. If they go to NELF, National Elder Law Foundation, NELF.org, there's a button to press that says find a lawyer. And that will allow them to locate wherever the nearest lawyer is to them who is certified as a National Elder Law Attorney, uh, uh, as an elder lawyer. We, um, we have only, there are 500 of us now. Wow. Uh, we just broke the 500 number. Um, and so there, there are, a lot of them around. I mean, I think there are almost 50 in Pennsylvania, for example. Um, the, to, to, to become a certified elder law attorney, there are a number of steps that, they, that one has to go through. And we think that if the, the people have gone through those steps, we, uh, we have lawyers who are uh, trustworthy and who can, uh, can handle the situation. They're not somebody who just hung out their shingle and said, hey, I want to practice elder law. Right. Um, you know, you have to have practiced for at least five years in this area. You have to have it as your full-time, as your, your main uh, focus of your practice. You have to have uh, handled a certain number of cases. It's, you have to, have to uh, document that you've handled 50 different cases 
in uh, in uh, divided among the 12 areas of elder law. Uh, you can't just say, well, I've written 50 wills and that qualifies me. You could five of those cases or seven of those cases could be writing wills, but you have to do all the other things that uh, that elder law attorneys can be expected to do. You have to be knowledgeable about uh, needs-based public benefits. You have to be knowledgeable about um, uh, senior citizens' rights. Uh, you have to be knowledgeable about veterans' rights, special needs law, uh, housing, the, the full panoply of areas of the law that apply to senior citizens, you have to have cases in those areas. You also have to have references from at least five attorneys who are familiar, personally familiar with your work uh, to, uh, to uh, who vouch that you're a good lawyer. Uh, a good lawyer. And then the, uh, uh, you have to, I'm sorry, you have to also have uh, performed a certain number of CLE uh, credits within a certain period of time. Uh, and it's usually two or three times greater than the CLE requirement for a uh, for a sta- the standard CLE uh, continuing legal education requirement. And then the last thing you do, and which is which is what brought me to Florida right now, is you have to pass a an examination, and it's a six and a half hour examination, and it's uh, on all twelve areas of elder law, and the pass rate is generally around twenty or twenty five percent. So Three of very very poor people who who have passed you know who say they practiced in this area for five years and who say they've got this broad practice uh, and who think they can get uh, um, uh, references from the from the different lawyers can't pass the uh, the knowledge requirement to be certified as an elder law attorney. Well, I'm always saying it's so very important. These are you know, important issues to go to the professional, choose the right professional. And that's why we have our guest experts like yourself on. Amos, I know your practice is limited to Pennsylvania. So if people in uh, Pennsylvania want to contact you, how can they do that? And for people, let's say, like in New York, New Jersey, or anywhere else in the country, what should they do? Well, my firm is Steinbacher Goodall in your check. Yeah, and we're in State College, Pennsylvania. PAElderCouncil.com is our website, and our number is 814-237-4100. But yeah, if someone's in New Jersey, they should really contact a New Jersey uh, certified elder law attorney, and, ah, and there are many yeah. of them. And I know half a dozen, all of them are very good. And uh, the, in New York, there's... There are a lot of elder law attorneys, and I know a number of really good ones in New York. So, uh, if, if they're in Pennsylvania, and as I said before, there are many uh, certified elder law attorneys in Pennsylvania uh, who, if, if there's a local lawyer who's, who has the certification, that's, that's where you, the, the person should start. Now, it's always important when you're hiring a lawyer that you feel good about it. So, if you go and talk to the lawyer and you, you have, after a, an initial consultation, you don't feel like this lawyer takes the time to understand or is responsive, is trying to, is not willing to let the, let the client drive the train, drive the car, uh, uh, but insists on saying this is what you need, whether that's what the person needs or not, without educating the person, then it's time to look for another lawyer. Uh, I really recommend that folks go to the NELF website and look for a certified other law attorney in their own local area. Uh, as the, that would be, the, in my view, the best, absolute best place to start. 
Thank you so much, Amos. And unfortunately, we're out of time again already. Thank you so much, Amos. You really uh, did it again. Well, thank you. <laughs> and to our Parents Are Hard to Raise listeners, I love getting your emails and questions, so keep just sending them in. You can reach me at Diane at ParentsAreHardToRaise.org or just click the green button on our homepage. Parents Are Hard to Raise is a CounterThink Media production. The music used in this broadcast was managed by Cosmo Music, New York, New York. Our New York producer is Joshua Green. Our broadcast engineer is Well Gambino. And from our London studios, the melodic voice of our announcer, Miss Dolly D. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time, may you forget everything you don't want to remember. And remember everything you don't want to forget. See you again next week. <laughs>